Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. With over 70 years of antibiotic history, infectious diseases still have the ability to bring the world to its knees. So how safe and effective are vaccines, and are they our way out? Discussing this topic is Professor Helen Marshall, a child health and vaccination expert, and Professor James Patton, who translates bacterial discoveries into improved health outcomes, including vaccinations. So Helen, can we begin by discussing how a vaccination actually works? Yeah, vaccinations work in a really simple way. Um, a vaccine um, contains a protein, uh, like an inactivated or a weakened protein from a bacteria or virus, uh, which is identified as an important component for the um, immune system to respond to. And when that vaccine is given, the immune uh, system recognises that protein as something foreign and mounts a, a response to that. And that uh, is development of antibodies to that protein. But we also have um, cells called memory cells as part of our immune system, and they hold that memory. So that if we come in contact with the wild-type virus or bacteria, we can increase that antibody production and protect ourselves against the disease. Right, so we're prepared to really fight the disease absolutely quickly. Okay, and so um, these vaccinations contain these proteins that are um, or mimicking or inactivated forms of the real virus or bacteria. Uh, what else do they uh, include in a vaccination little tube? Yeah, so within the vaccination, you've got a very small amount of that uh, protein or inactivated part of the organism. Um, you, it's also really important that the vaccine remains um, stable. As you can imagine, vaccines are made to be used around the world um, and there are very hot places and cool places and they have to be maintained at a standard temperature. So often a small amount of a stabiliser is included in that vaccine to protect it and make sure it's safe for months and years as it's stored uh, before it's delivered. And what's the process um, of developing a vaccination? Um, vaccine, well, right at the start, um, scientists uh, will, um, of, of course, I guess we identify a disease that's important to protect against in the community and for individuals. A scientist will then um, look at the bacteria and virus and identify important proteins or antigens in that uh, virus and bacteria. And I'm sure James will be telling us a little bit more about that. Um, and that's often a part or protein part of the organism that is important for the virulence of that organism. It might be part of that protein that allows the virus or bacteria to get into um, a cell, for example. And so that uh, is used then to, um, to make the vaccine and then um, other components may be included uh, to increase the immune response to that protein. Mm. So if you can imagine um, a very small amount of protein may not be enough to really get the immune system responding in a big way. So sometimes an adjuvant is added to that um, vaccine, to that protein, to as a bit of a, an irritant to the immune system to say, yeah, yeah, come on, get on board. Uh, we need to develop a, a strong response to this protein. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that way, um, the scientists can then test uh, whether an, an adjuvant is needed or not. And the way that they then do that is through um, animal studies. So mm -hmm. what we call preclinical trials is where you actually use that vaccine and test it in animals. 
Right, okay. And uh, the first um, studies that are done in animals are really to make sure the vaccine is safe and that there is an immune response to make sure that that vaccine is, is um, appropriate to go forward to uh, human trials. Okay. So then we go into the clinical trial uh, stage, which is phase one, phase two and phase three studies. The phase one studies are done in adults and that's really to look again at the safety of the vaccine in a small number of adults, maybe 100, 150. Once the vaccine's shown to be safe in um, that small number of adults, we then move into phase two, which could be hundreds of people. And again, safety, we're really looking at safety here, but also making sure the vaccine um, works. Uh, yeah, <laughs> works and causes an immune, yeah. immune response, exactly. And then we move into the phase three studies, which are maybe up to tens of thousands of people. And again, the emphasis there is on safety again, also immune response, but sometimes we can also measure whether how effective the vaccine is depending on how common the disease is. Okay, so that sounds like quite a laborious process and time-consuming <laughs> process. Um, how is it that the COVID vaccine, vaccine was able to be developed so quickly despite uh, the time pressure? Yeah, there are a number of reasons for that. And I'm um, completely confident, having worked in this area for 20 years, I'm completely confident in the process of the um, COVID vaccine um, production. Uh, there are a couple of reasons for it, though. Um, I think people would assume that uh, really COVID vaccine production or manufacturers started only 18 months ago, and really there was a lot of work happening before then. So there are already um, vaccines being using the same sort of technology of the messenger RNA, DNA, under development, but not for COVID. So there was a little bit of history there. Mm. Um, there's also, um, I think, a really important fact is that, um, you know, we were in a pandemic, unprecedented times, <laughs> and it was very much about... Um, government and academia and pharmaceutical companies all realising the importance of this vac of having a vaccine to protect against the pandemic. Mm. So there was a huge investment in science, financial investment from governments, um, from um, NGOs as well, uh, everyone working together to get a vaccine um, available quickly. But the, and, and again, um, when the clinical trials have been done, they've been done sometimes in parallel or very uh, closely. So some trials started out as phase one, have moved into phase two and, and three in quite quick succession, rather having separate trials. Mm -hmm. So that made it faster. And then I think um, one of the other really interesting things for me is that um, it's quite hard, it can be quite difficult to recruit people to clinical trials because people worry about risks of mm -hmm. new vaccines. But there were more people putting their hands up to be involved in clinical trials than clinical trial spots. Right. So I think that was unusual too, but it meant the clinical trials could be completed really quickly. Fantastic. Oh. Right, of course. That makes so much sense. I think one other point that might be probably contributed to the speed of development of the COVID vaccines is the fact that they'd learnt quite a lot about uh, vaccines for related coronaviruses such mm. as SARS and MERS. And so they already had a pretty good idea what an appropriate target molecule would be on the surface of COVID-19. And this probably brought the, uh, you, know, you know, sort of shortened the uh, timescale substantially. And on mm. top of that, you had sort of an unquestioned commitment uh, by not only governments but also the pharmaceutical companies to back it right the way and this was why they were needed, able to go rapidly from phase one to two to three because they knew the funding was there and they knew the market was going to be there and so 
the companies weren't at major financial risk, whereas often when a vaccine's being developed by a small biotech company or coming out of academia, there are rounds of capital raising from mm. investors and you don't get enough money to do the phase two trial until you've raised enough to do a phase one and shown that you've got promising data and that's then used to go back to the market, another round of fundraising and so on like that. So all of that was shortcut at this time. Right. Well, that may be a good um, segue then into, um, James, if you could explain your work. Yeah, well, I don't work on viruses, so uh, <laughs> I, I, I work on uh, principally on a bacterium called Streptococcus pneumoniae or pneumococcus, mm -hmm. it's shortened to. And uh, prior to COVID, this was probably the single most important uh, vaccine market in the world. It's a bacterium which has been with us for, you know, for millennia. So what we were wanting to do, we've been going on this since uh, about 1982, something like that, uh, is to really understand how this bug interacts with humans, how it goes about colonising uh, the host, what sort of things does it produce uh, to enable it to colonise, does it, you know, particular proteins called adhesins which enable it to hang on to the cells lining the respiratory tract. Uh, various other proteins which help it to scavenge nutrients um, because it needs food mm -hmm. um, and things which help to resist the sorts of attack which the immune system of the host throws at it. So this would include the capsule. Mm -hmm. um, it would also include proteins which attack components of the host immune system to make them less effective and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And so what we've been doing over all these years is to really work out is there a particular group, you know, a, a small handful of um, factors produced by pneumococci regardless of serotype? So what are, what are the things which all pneumococci have to do in order to cause disease? And can you have vaccines based on that? Mm. And what we found really was the fact that after, you know, with many years we were looking at purified proteins, um, and perhaps up to about three or four of them. And we can get these to work quite nicely in mice and that sort of thing. But the issue is that the strength of the protection that you get against all of the strains was never as strong as the protection you get when you use the existing conjugate vaccine for the serotypes that it covers. And in order to get a vaccine licensed, it cannot be inferior to one which is already in the market and being used. It would not be ethical to take away a vaccine, deny people access to a vaccine which is highly effective against those 13 serotypes, um, and then replace it with something which is less effective, even if it covers a bit more or something right. like that. And so to get a new vaccine into the market, we needed something which, and that was something which just the purified proteins on their own wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Purified mixtures of purified proteins uh, have, are used in other, other diseases. You've got things like tetanus and diphtheria where it's just one protein, mm -hmm. the toxin, which mm -hmm. is used as the basis of the vaccine. Uh, or whooping cough, you know, pertussis they call it. Uh, it's a cocktail of about four or five proteins which uh, collectively makes the vaccine. But that approach didn't work with pneumococcus. And we've gone right back to a very simple sort of vaccine. And what, we, what we've done is that we've taken the pneumococcus, we've taken away its capsule, and so now all of the surface proteins, which normally only just had the very tips of their heads poking out through the capsular layer, are now fully exposed. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we've taken away the capsule means that the bug is very, very safe. It can't cause significant disease without a capsule. 
Um, but the immune system is now getting a really good look at all of the proteins which make up the surface of the bacterium. And we've made a few sort of genetic mutations to the vaccine strain to give it desirable traits to manipulate uh, expression of proteins which we think are particularly important for eliciting a good immune response. And so, and we, and the final, the real piece of the puzzle which makes it as good as it is, is the fact we then inactivate, inactivate it um, by irradiating a gamma irradiation. So basically uh, high energy, uh, high energy uh, uh, electromagnetic radiation. And this just puts little uh, breaks in the DNA. And as soon as you get a break in the DNA of the bacteria, it can no longer replicate. And so it can, uh, uh, so it's completely you know, non-viable. Mm -hmm. you know, it can't grow, it can't proliferate in the body and cause disease or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but what it, what it does though is because it leaves all of the proteins on the surface pretty well intact. And that's really one of the problems with proteins used as immunogens. If they are, if they have to be, if, it, if a bug has to be inactivated or if a toxin has to be uh, made safe to administer, Typically in the old days used to use chemical agents like formaldehyde or glutaraldehyde to modify the surface of the protein um, such that it was no longer functional and hence safe to administer. But in so doing, they've changed the shape, the shape slightly. Mm -hmm. And so the immune response which the body mounts to these toxoided proteins, as they call them, often isn't as uh, good a fit mm -hmm. as it might be. And so what we've done is by having this gamma radiation as the means of inactivating the whole bacteria, we've left all of the surface proteins in their native conformation. And right. so they're yeah. great fits for the real bug. And we find now that when you, you now have, because we're, instead of just picking three or four proteins, we've now got hundreds. Mm -hmm. And we're getting immune responses to all of those proteins. And so the total amount of antibody that you can bind to the surface of the bacterium, you know, of, a, of a virulent bacterium with a capsule, is now enough to trigger uptake by white blood cells and killing just like the uh, polysaccharide conjugate vaccine does. Right, so we've amazing. now got something which we believe can at least match uh, the polysaccharide conjugate vaccines currently being used, but not just cover 13, but cover all, you know, all of the strains, all, right. all 100 of them. That's incredible. So what phase um, is your vaccination? So vaccine? we're at sort of a late preclinical. Uh, we've done all of the studies uh, that we intend to in terms of, you know, we've used these vaccines in mouse models and shown that we can protect from otherwise fatal infection. Mm. And we can get antibody, you know, antibodies raised, which when we immunise rabbits, those antibodies can be used in what they call in vitro assays, and in essentially in the in the you know, in the plastic tray, you can uh, demonstrate that these antibodies will enable uh, white blood cells to engulf and kill the organism. So we've got proof of that. We're now at a sort of a we're in partnership with a small biotech company, which was uh, uh, which was sort of you know, uh, sort of founded in Adelaide. And uh, what the company has done is it's raised capital to fund the phase one trial. And also we're at the process of manufacturing scale up. So we've now worked out a method for growing the uh, bacterium in, uh, large, in large volumes mm. uh, and how to process it. 
and keep it stable, the point which Helen raised earlier about vaccines have to be stable. You know, the earlier versions which we were using in the lab probably weren't, but we've now got a formulation which will keep it stable even, even if it's not refrigerated for, you know, for, for a moderate, you know, for a reasonable period of time. Right. Okay, well, that's incredible. Obviously, you, you said that you'd, you've started this project in the 80s. Yeah, but I can yeah. imagine. <laughs> it's sort of, we, we pivoted. Long gestation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah long gestation. And, and we pivoted to, uh, we pivoted to uh, uh, this approach about six or seven years, about seven years ago. Right, um, but so, to see it come to this point, yeah, um, yeah. starting phase one trials is, yeah. would be hugely exciting. Congratulations, yeah. that's yeah. very awesome. Um, can you describe your research to us, Helen? Yeah, sure. So we, um, I guess, have three main areas of research. The, uh, I guess our biggest component is doing clinical trials, as mm -hmm. I explained, from phase one through to phase three. Um, and I guess our specialty area really is doing the trials in children mm -hmm. and infants. So once vaccines have been tested in um, adults um, and move through those phases, we then do um, studies to make sure they're safe and effective in children as well. And what, what bugs are you focused on? Well, um, we've been uh, quite involved in meningococcal vaccines, mm -hmm. uh, human papillomavirus vaccine trials um, earlier on. Um, at the moment, we're about to start next week a COVID um, vaccine trial. Wow. Uh, it's a DNA vaccine, so similar to the messenger RNA type vaccines. And uh, that's been funded by the government. Mm -hmm. And that, the idea behind that is that in Australia, it would really be great for us to have our, be manufacturing our own vaccines rather than relying on large um, pharma uh, producing messenger RNA and DNA vaccines right. that's very overseas. Exciting. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's one area. Um, another area is we're, we're interested in looking at uh, what conditions may impact on the um, response, immune response to the vaccine. So even pregnancy, where your immune system changes a bit um, mm -hmm. during pregnancy, um, are we giving pregnant women enough vaccines to protect them or enough doses to protect them against flu? Um, again, again, with COVID, um, we know that women who have been infected by COVID have really um, severe outcomes for themselves and for their um, babies, sometimes as fetal loss, as death. So we need to know how many doses a pregnant woman woman needs um, of a particular vaccine. Uh, also, um, of course, children who have immunodeficiency conditions, do they need additional doses? Mm -hmm. So it's thinking about those groups, vulnerable groups, who may require different schedules to um, just the standard schedule of vaccines. Have you looked into um, the role of inflammation in the way a host receives a vaccine? Yeah, in a way, um, we're, we're looking at the moment, we're looking at um, the effects of obesity mm -hmm. on vaccine responses. And um, I'm sure you're aware obesity really is like a chronic inflammatory condition. And at the moment, interestingly enough, it looks like the um, responses are higher, but that could relate to it being an inflammatory type condition that you're actually having a, a, a boosted um, immune response. So um, it's still early stages, um, but we're, we're really interested in you know, looking at, at how those conditions can affect yeah, immune absolutely. responses. Mm -hmm. And then the third area um, is really around looking at when you introduce a vaccine into an immunisation program, um, acceptance of that in the community. So you might find with particular vaccines you introduce, there are certain groups within the community who um, have lower uptake. Mm. And so we really need to understand why that is and um, try and target campaigns 
messages, um, messaging around the vaccines, trying to identify what the issues are for that group. Um, for example, um, we noticed that um, women who uh, don't have English as their first language had lower uptake of uh, vaccines during pregnancy. So then there are easy ways to um, remedy that by providing information in, you know, in lots of languages, not just in English. So of course. it's just, yeah, trying to address, um, to make sure we get high uptake of vaccines once they're introduced. Mm, absolutely. So important. Um, and briefly, can we just talk a little bit about antibiotic resistance? Um, Helen, can you explain what antibiotic resistance actually is? Yeah, sure. It's where, um, it's where, again, as James was talking about, where you can get mutations within a bacteria, for example, um, that reduces susceptibility to antibiotics. And antibiotics um, have been such an effective way of treating bacterial infections. But the more mutations you get, the more antibiotics we use, um, it's not only a problem for that individual because they may end up with an overwhelming infection from a bacteria that is resistant to the treatment, but they could then pass that on to other people in the population. Mm. So this has become a, a really globally important issue um, with over, you know, three quarters of a million people dying from infections um, where the bacteria has become resistant. And, and a lot of it um, comes down to overuse of antibiotics. So... Um, we see that happening not only here in Australia, where perhaps uh, antibiotics are prescribed for viral infections like colds, which are caused by a virus, but also um, in low-resource countries where, and in some countries, antibiotics can be purchased over the chemist, over the, you know, counter from a mm. chemist, and and so you get overuse of antibiotics, um, this um, developing resistance, and and then you've got no way of treating that infection. Right, that's a very scary uh, mm. consideration. Um, James, what um, what role does vaccine, what role do vaccines think, play in antibiotic resistance? Look, I think I can give you an pneumococcus is a good example here and that uh, the young children with middle ear infections is one of the commonest reasons for a child to be taken to see a general practitioner and it's also one of the most common reasons for prescribing of an antibiotic. And so if you've got a vaccine which can prevent those cases of uh, middle ear infections, then the child doesn't get taken to uh, the doctor and isn't prescribed an antibiotic. And so the total sort of burden of antibiotics which are being consumed by the population is reduced. And this is something which is very dependent on, you know, rates of antibiotic resistance, as Helen has said, are driven by the amount of antibiotic that we're using. We're applying what they call selective pressure. Mm -hmm. If, uh, if antibiotics are not being used, there's no advantage of a bacterium to express the uh, particular change in its DNA uh, which uh, gives it resistance to that antibiotic. Normally there's a, some sort of a metabolic cost to an antibiotic resistance mechanism and so it only will, it'll only be advantageous to a bacterium if it's likely to encounter that antibiotic in its environment. And so. The more vaccines we have against bacterial infections, then the less will be the demand for use of antibiotics, at least in the human population. And I suppose it applies to the veterinary population as well. Um, and as a consequence, there'll be less selection for evolution of resistant strains and proliferation of mm. the resistant strains which already exist. 
pneumococcus likes to, again, I've told you, it likes to share DNA. It's very, very quickly you can get antibiotic resistance spreading from one strain to another. And so if you are using them, then you know, there was a time in uh, sort of places like um, Spain, for example, in the sort of 80s, there was quite high rates of use of penicillin. And unsurprisingly, something like 60% of all pneumococcal strains were fully resistant to that, to that antibiotic. So it was not particularly clinically useful. Um, important thing to think in terms of clinical management is that uh, very often with a bacteria, with an inva potentially invasive bacteria like pneumococcus and meningococcus as well, and the monophilus, you only get one shot at treating it um, mm. because the bug can do a lot of damage early on. And so if you don't treat early, then by the time you work out that that bug's resistant and you change the therapy to something else, too much damage has been done and the patient won't survive. Right. So it sounds like antibiotic resistance is a reality that the whole population needs to be aware of. Yeah. We'll take antibiotics yeah. and benefit from them. Yeah. Well, see, so these yeah, they, they they arose as basically interbacterial warfare. Mm. Um, a bug will make an antibiotic to kill off its competitors so mm -hmm. it can have a better, a better life in the environment which it's chosen. But in order to stop itself being killed by its own friendly fire, as it were, it has to have a resistance mechanism. And so any antibiotic which is derived from a naturally occurring compound, there has to be somewhere out in the biosphere a resistance mechanism. And it's simply a matter of time before the genes encoding those mechanisms are taken up by the intended target and the way right. it goes. That does sound like warfare. <laughs> well, James and Helen, thank you so much for this uh, very important work that you do. I found it incredibly interesting to learn about a very relevant topic. Um, so thank you for your time on the Discovery Pod today. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. Join us next time when we discuss nutrition.